Welcome to the AK47 Podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am recording this special episode on Saturday, January 9th, which is just a few days after what people are calling the Capitol Insurrection, what other people are saying was an attempted coup, and what certainly was a clear example of the kind of hatred and fascism that has infected American politics in the Trump era. As I record this, I have really no idea what is going to happen in the next two weeks before the president, who is apparently raving like Mad King George in the White House, actually leaves office. There are rumors that more violence is planned uh, for January 17th, a Sunday, and also for the inauguration itself, because Trump has told his supporters that he's not going to be there, so they can feel free to try to burn down Washington if they so deem necessary. It's a very strange time to be in the United States. I don't think it's that much of a surprise that this happened. I'm actually I'm actually quite surprised at how surprised people are, given that Trump has been spreading these falsehoods and lies about the stolen election for as long as he has. And the people who were involved in the Capitol breach, the insurrection or the coup d'etat, whatever you want to call it, fascist uprising, are, you know, uh, people who have been consistently lied to through their social media feeds and alternative media that has completely, you know, created this alternate reality for these people who don't realize, you know, what's actually going on, uh, that the election was fair. 80, 90 judges have said so, and the attorney general, Trump's own attorney general has said so, and Finally, some of the people high up in his party, like Mitch McConnell, are admitting that Joe Biden won the election. So it's a very strange moment to be here in the United States. I, you know, can't really describe the feeling. I was actually watching live uh, the Senate as they were discussing the challenging the Arizona electoral results. And suddenly, you know, they suspended the the session and we got word in real time that protesters had breached the Capitol. So it was it's been a very strange couple of days. I, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about what to read, what to how to respond. I felt like I had to say something. I have to respond somehow. And a very dear friend of mine, the poet Annie Finch, who's actually been on this podcast in one of the very early episodes where we talked about abortion, sent me an amazing poem by Adrian Rich, which was written in 1983. The name of the poem is North American Time. And what's amazing about the poem and the reason that Annie sent it to me is because she name checks Alexandra Kolontai, which is very interesting uh, for the for the purpose of, you know, this podcast, the the influence that Alexandra Kolontai has had in popular culture in the United States, particularly in the women's movement in the 70s. And so in lieu of reading one of Kolontai's essays today, as I think about the precarious state of my country, 
I'm going to read this poem by Adrienne Rich because I think it captures something of the feeling that I am having of how difficult it is to be a writer, particularly in this era. The difficulty of words, the difficulty of censorious nature of, of the left and the right, of the media environment that we are in, where any tweet possibly can be used against you in some way. And I also think that she's capturing something of the injustice that she felt about the United States in, in 1983. I was only 13 years old when this poem was originally written, but I have a very clear sense of the feeling of injustice because it was um, the Reagan era and, and the kind of re-ignition of the Cold War and fears of mutually assured destruction and nuclear war were the kinds of fears that animated my childhood, much the same way that the fears of climate change animate the childhood of many young people in the world today, the young adulthood of many young people in the world today. I think that there's a similar and very palpable fear in this poem. So before I read the poem, I just want to say, obviously, Adrian Rich does a much better job of reading her own poetry than I will. And I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to a YouTube video of uh, Rich herself reading this poem. And in, and in that YouTube video, she, she gives a couple of notes uh, by way of introduction. And the one thing that she says is that in 1983, the term politically correct did not mean what it means today. It was a, a term a chiding term often used in the, in the women's movement when people were becoming too dogmatic. It did not ever, it was never used as a kind of bludgeon to say that people were politically, that something they said was politically incorrect in a serious way. It was, it, 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 it got that meaning afterwards. And then the second thing that I think is really important is that she name checks um, Julia de Borgos, which is a, uh, a woman who was a Puerto Rican nationalist and a poet and a revolutionary who died in New York. Uh, incredible, incredible figure. You can, you can look her up. I'll, I'll leave a, a link about her biography as well. And in many ways, this poem is a product of 1983. So some of the references are very specific to what's going on politically in that period of time. But on the other hand, I really feel like this poem is quite eternal in terms of the struggles of what it means to be a poet and to have verbal privilege. She uses this term verbal privilege, the privilege of having other people read your words and seek meaning in your words. And also about the grave injustices that have been perpetrated for a long time in the United States, and which I believe have in many ways all led up to the current moment that we are seeing with protesters carrying Confederate flags in the halls of the Capitol building. So this is North American Time by Adrienne Rich. When my dreams showed signs of becoming politically correct, no unruly images escaping beyond border when walking in the street I found my themes cut out for me, knew what I would not report for fear of enemies' usage. Then, 
I began to wonder. Everything we write will be used against us or against those we love. These are the terms. Take them or leave them. Poetry never stood a chance of standing outside history. One line typed 20 years ago can be blazed on a wall in spray paint, glorifying art as detachment or torture of those we did not love, but also did not want to kill. We move, but our words stand, become responsible. And this is verbal privilege. Try sitting at a typewriter one calm summer evening at a table by a window in the country. Try pretending your time does not exist, that you are simply you, that the imagination simply strays like a great moth, unintentional. Try telling yourself you are not accountable to the life of your tribe, the breath of your planet. It doesn't matter what you think. Words are found responsible. All you can do is choose them or choose to remain silent. Or you never had a choice, which is why the words that do stand are responsible. And this is verbal privilege. Suppose you want to write of a woman braiding another woman's hair straight down or with beads and shells in three-strand plaits or cornrows. You had better know the thickness, the length, the pattern, why she decides to braid her hair and how it is done to her, what country it happens in, what else happens in that country. You have to know these things. Poet, sister, words, whether we like it or not, stand in a time of their own. No use protesting. I wrote that before Kollontai was exiled. Rosa Luxemburg, Malcolm, Anime Akwash murdered. Before Treblinka, Birkenau, Hiroshima, before Sharpville, Biafra, Bangladesh, Boston, Atlanta, Suito, Beirut, Assam. Those faces, names of places, sheared from the almanac of North American time. I am thinking this in a country where words are stolen out of mouths as bread is stolen out of mouths where poets don't go to jail for being poets, but for being dark-skinned, female, poor. I am writing this in a time when anything we write can be used against those we love, where the context is never given, though we try to explain over and over, for the sake of poetry at least, I need to know these things. Sometimes, gliding at night in a plane over New York City, I have felt like some messenger called to enter, called to engage this field of light and darkness, a grandiose idea born of flying. 
But underneath the grandiose idea is the thought that what I must engage after the plane has raged onto the tarmac, after climbing my old stair, sitting down at my old window, is meant to break my heart and reduce me to silence. In North America, time stumbles on without moving, only releasing a certain North American pain. Julia de Burgos wrote that my grandfather was a slave is my grief. Had he been a master, that would have been my shame. A poet's words hung over a door in North America in the year 1983. The almost full moon rises, timeless speaking of change out of the Bronx, the Harlem River, the drowned towns of the Quabin, the pilfered burial mounds, the toxic swamps, the testing grounds, and I start to speak again. So that was the poem North American Time by Adrian Rich a poet who died at the age of 82 in 2012. As I said, for those of you who are interested, I will leave a link to her reading this poem on YouTube. There's a nice little video of it. So if you want to hear her read her own words, but I love this poem for several reasons. Most importantly, I suppose, because she specifically talks about Kollontai's exile the, the fact that Kolontai was this incredible revolutionary, one of these old Bolsheviks who ends up being kind of booted out of direct power because of her participation in the workers' opposition. She also talks about people like Rosa Luxemburg, obviously Malcolm X, people who were murdered for their political views. But I also love the idea that she's playing with here about how poets are responsible, writers are responsible for knowing the time that they live in, for understanding what is happening in the country in which they're writing about. Even if it's about something as simple as one woman braiding another woman's hair, not only do you need to know the thickness and how the braid is doing and why the woman wants her hair braided, but you need to know this sort of richer social and cultural context of what's happening in the country in which she is having her hair braided, that there's some kind of moral responsibility of writers and poets and artists to pay attention to the times that they're living in and to make art that somehow brings attention, calls attention to the injustices of that time. I think that Adrian Rich also here, this is in 1983, sort of be really before the hegemony of kind of postmodern discourse, she's still a very politically engaged poet. And she accepts that words can be used against you, that your words stand as a testament to your thoughts. And you can protest, well, I wrote that before this happened, or I wrote that before this happened. All of these words are going to stand the test of time. They're going to be indelibly inked into history if you have published them. And, and she calls this verbal privilege. She says, look, those of us who write, we write because we feel compelled to write. And the only other choice is to remain silent, which I think is in and of itself an interesting conundrum. How many of us out there today are silent about things we believe in or ideas that we have because we fear that other people will find them unacceptable 
or that if they aren't unacceptable right now, they will be unacceptable in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 100 years. I think that Kolontai struggled with this in her own writing. She was writing in an immediate post-revolutionary period, and she said things that were used against her, particularly her ideas about sexual emancipation of women. But she said them nonetheless, and she stood by them in an interesting way. And I think that it's difficult for us today with the social media and, and, and all of the constant bombardment about what is or isn't okay to say because it is or isn't politically correct and how that constantly changing discourse about what is and isn't appropriate to speak in public is a problem for us. It's not an unreasonable unreasonable critique of the left to to say that we are our own worst enemies when it comes to censorship of our own thoughts and feelings and ideas. And here Adrian Rich I think is really struggling with that. And I think it's really important right now in this incredibly tumultuous moment of American United States history to remember that we have a responsibility to speak out to write about these times, to create art about these times, to reflect on these times. It may mean that at some point in the future our words will be used against us, but that means that we have to embrace the risk. And that, as Adrian Rich would say, is verbal privilege. As always, thank you so much for listening. And please, now more than ever, keep up the good fight. <laughs>